Welcome to Doing a World of Good, a podcast from the American Institute of Chemical Engineers and generously supported by Raj and Kumla Gupta, shining the light on the positive works of our members and supporters. I'm your host, Bob Norp. It's hard to overstate the importance of Dr. Jay Kiesling's work. He and his team's pioneering efforts in the metabolic engineering space have led to triumphs such as the creation of a groundbreaking low-cost version of an anti-malarial drug, while his current focus on developing microorganisms that break down harmful contaminants and produce new biofuels is helping, defend, helping end dependence on fossil fuels and reduce environmental impact. All of which explains why he was honored in 2019 for his groundbreaking contributions to resource sustainability and human welfare, as well as his commitment to fostering inclusive educational and working environments, with the AICHE Foundation's Doing a World of Good Medal, an award that salutes the achievements of an individual who has advanced the societal contributions of engineers. And now we're pleased to welcome to the program the Philomanthia Professor of Alternative Energy at the University of California, Berkeley, Senior Faculty Scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and CEO of the Joint Bioenergy Institute, Dr. Jay Kiesling. Welcome, Jay, to the program. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, we have to start with your work. I think that's what everybody really wants to hear about right off the bat. So take us through your research journey. Uh, How and when did you first become interested in your specific area of study? Yeah, it's it's um, a great question, and um, it's a little bit hard to say, but I can remember uh, when I was a teenager, um, I, I grew up on a farm in Nebraska, and we got um, Newsweek, and I remember getting Newsweek and seeing a story about Genentech starting, and this would have been in um, the mid to late 70s, and how popular Genentech was. And this idea of engineering microbes, in their case, to produce uh, pharmaceutically related proteins um, like human growth hormone and human insulin. Um, and and I be, was so fascinated with that. Um, when I went to college, I took uh, genetics. Um, now, hold on a second. Let's that, talk. Let's move back to the, the yeah. you're on a farm in Nebraska and you're learning about genetics, gen, gen I mean, it's just like, that's, that's pretty outstanding. What brought you to that, uh, that information in the first place? What was your first exposure to it? Well, I, you know, I was interested in science. Uh, I happened to pick up this magazine and, and see this article about how many people were applying for jobs at Genentech and, you know, how it was the, you know, kind of, this is just after the biotech revolution. This is just after uh, we, we, the scientific community, learned how to clone and express foreign DNA in an organism. And so it was a a hugely exciting period. And um, I was fascinated with science and um, just remember reading this and thinking about how fantastic that was. And and how much uh, I really wanted to uh, be in this area and be working in this uh, field. Was it really self-led or were you um, kind of nurtured by a particular science teacher or somebody in the community who was giving you this information or was it just purely your own interest? Well, I, I picked up the magazine myself, but I had some great science teachers. I, I uh, being on a farm in Nebraska, I graduated in a class of 21 Wow. <laughs> um, uh, from a, I, I grew up in a town called Harvard, Nebraska, 
and uh, <laughs> uh, very small high school, but I had uh, some really excellent teachers uh, in math and in chemistry and biology um, who who uh, were very encouraging and who also kind of led me down a, a self-paced approach where I could I could move at my own pace, um, which happened to be a little bit of ahead of, of the others in the class. Um, and this allowed me to explore some things that I really wanted to explore. And so um, I give them a lot of credit for um, getting me interested and encouraging uh, science. And then you moved on to college from there and you went immediately into the sciences. Um, engineering came a little bit later, but what was your experience there like? Yeah. So, so, um, while I was really interested in, um, in engineering microbes, um, I went to college with this idea that I would probably go to medical school and, um, I majored in chemistry and biology. Um, but I was really interested in the science. And uh, I uh, had uh, I went out to a field station, a biological field station for a summer after my freshman year. And that's really what convinced me to, to stick with um, science research and not uh, go to medical school. And I uh, did some research in a genetics lab, did research in a synthetic chemistry lab. Um, and, and that really got me hooked on science. And then I went to graduate school in chemical engineering, not in chemistry or biology, because I, I was also being from a farm really practical and, and mm. wanted to see things be a little bit closer to implementation of the science. And um, so I chose uh, the field of chemical engineering where a lot of the biotech processes were being developed. And it was really, by the time I was going to graduate school, uh, bio, bioengineering was really hot. And um, so I had a, had a great experience in graduate school, had uh, a really superb uh, two advisors um, who were also very encouraging, one in, in kind of the microbiology side and another in chemical engineering. And it was just a really awesome experience for me and something that I wanted to continue. So um, I then applied for faculty positions um, as, as well as uh, for a postdoc position. Um, I got the postdoc position at Stanford uh, in biochemistry working for Arthur Kornberg, who um, had won the Nobel Prize for um, DNA synthesis, enzymatic DNA synthesis. Um, and also got a faculty position at UC Berkeley. So I was in uh, Stanford for a year doing a postdoc and then went to Berkeley um, and assumed my faculty position where so, I've been ever since. So basically you're an underachiever is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been really lucky to have um, very supportive folks in my life, uh, my uh, teachers, um, advisors at all levels and, uh, my family, especially. Wow. That's, that's great. That's fantastic. Well, let's, let's focus in on where your work kind of led you. What was the moment you realized you were really onto something and what were the first practical applications that became apparent to you as you were conducting your research? Yeah. So, so when I started at Berkeley, this would have been in 1992, um, uh, the field of metabolic engineering, was just kind of starting out. Mm. And 
Um, I would say I would, I've also been lucky in terms of timing. Um, uh, and, and metabolic engineering is really about engineering the metabolism inside microbes primarily, but now it's branched out into other organisms like plants um, and even mammalian cell lines um, to produce a particular product. Uh, and generally, unlike what uh, Genentech was doing uh, back in the um, 70s and actually still is doing now where they were focusing on protein therapeutics, metabolic engineering is mainly with this idea of smaller molecules, things that might be fuels, uh, commodity and specialty chemicals, as well as small molecule pharmaceuticals. And um, so, so uh, really kind of exciting area just starting out. Um, I focused my work a lot on developing tools that would allow us to more readily engineer microbes to produce a particular product. And that's that's a fascinating part of it uh, in and of itself. Um, the fact that the tools weren't even available to do what you needed to do. It wasn't just that your research had to discover what these um, microbes could possibly do or what could possibly be engineered, but to come up with the actual mechanisms for doing it were, was part of the process. That's right. That's right. But you have to remember, um, it was kind of the dark ages of science, right? I mean, mm. we we didn't have the World Wide Web back then um, that, uh, you know, back then there really weren't any sequenced organisms. I mean, there was a sequence, I think, maybe for E. coli, um, but uh, there wasn't widespread sequencing. We didn't have, you know, web pages filled with gene sequences that we could search. Um, DNA synthesis was non-existent. Um, so it was really difficult. Um, that was even before PCR was fully developed. So um, things have come a long way, but they don't just come a long way on their own. You have to be a part of the community and develop the tools. And, you know, it's not like we developed all the tools for metabolic engineering. We right. were part of a, a, a larger community that developed them. But the, the key for me was once we had developed those tools, what are we going to apply them to? And um, we started work on a family of natural products called isoprenoids. It's the largest family of natural products, and it's got some really interesting molecules, carotenoids, so the red color in tomatoes, the, the orangish color in carrots, um, a lot of our flavors and fragrances, colognes and perfumes, uh, the basis for those are isoprenoids, and some really interesting drugs, uh, one of which is Taxol, which is a $2 billion a year drug. Uh, and another one called artemisinin, which is the world's best anti-malarial drug. And um, a student, one of my graduate students pointed this out to me that, you know, the artemisinin molecule um, was not so complicated. And, you know, this was this is now 15 plus years ago, um, 18 years ago. We looked at it. We said, gosh, we ought to be able to engineer a microbe to produce this molecule. And so. We went down that path. Um, we showed that we could produce uh, one of the first precursors to artemisinin. Um, and that was enough um, in a publication to get us some notice from pharmaceutical companies. Um, they came to me and they said, oh, we'd really like to produce this molecule uh, in microbes because we have to extract it from a plant. It's too expensive, um, uh, difficult to source. 
Uh, and I said, yeah, but we're going to have to find some more genes in the pathway and we're going to have to have research money to do that. And I heard this long pause on the call. <laughs> um, and they said, well, sorry, uh, we don't make any money on these drugs because they're for poor people in Africa. Oh. Um, don't think we can fund this research. Um, that was right about the time where Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was really getting going. And uh, we, through various uh, contacts, got in touch with a program manager there. We wrote a proposal for $42 million. And after about a year of uh, going through um, the grinder there, uh, we got the grant. And that allowed us to um, find the gene, the rest of the genes in the pathway to develop a process. We started a company called Amaris, which um, is, is still in business and has gone way beyond artemisinin. And a few years later, we had a microbe, a yeast that produces a precursor called artemisinic acid. And then we easily can chemically convert that into a product. And um, lots of people in Africa and Southeast Asia have gotten access to this uh, molecule. Um, it was produced by our engineered yeast. Um, and we're now trying to expand that um, by uh, producing even more of it um, with a with a souped up strain that Amherst has built that's going to reduce the price even more. You know, it sounds like there was there was immediate appreciation from your for your work right from the beginning, both by universities and by the the business world. I mean, obviously the business world was a little bit put off by the fact that we can't make money on an anti-malarial drug, but still there was immediate interest for this, was there not? Or, or did it take there, a yeah, while? Yeah, there was. There was. There was. There certainly was. And I have to credit, you know, the Gates Foundation for recognizing that. And then when you get a grant from the Gates Foundation, that gets you a lot of notice. Um, you know, you're right. You can't make any money or not much money from artemisinin. You don't want to make much money from artemisinin. But that that organism we built to produce artemisinic acid was um, a, a vehicle that would allow us to produce flavors and fragrances, would allow us to produce other pharmaceutical molecules, could produce biofuels. Um, and really that had been developed for producing artemisinin by, by doing some uh, swaps in the genes, you can produce other like molecules. And those you can make money off of because people like cosmetics, they like perfumes, and they'll pay a good price for those, uh, particularly if they know that they are produced in an environmentally friendly, clean way. So let me give you an example. Um, squalane, which is uh, a molecule that uh, is found in a lot of cosmetics. It's an emollient, so it helps um, keep moisture in your skin and, and a very popular molecule used to be gotten from shark livers. Um, Amaris, the company that I started um, when we got the Gates Foundation grant, um, uh, is producing squalane using their engineered yeast. Now they have a cosmetic line out that, um, where you can get uh, their squalane products. And they're very good products, I have to say. Um, but it just shows that you know these aren't a single-purpose vehicle. They these engineered organisms. They can be used for producing lots of things and doing it in an environmentally friendly way. And then uh, just a few a year ago, we published a paper on uh, engineering yeast to produce cannabinoids. Um, so THC and CBDD, active ingredients found in uh, cannabis. 
And what this will allow us to do is to produce these molecules, some of the rare cannabinoids that are found um, in, in cannabis, reduce the cost substantially, um, reduce the amount of electricity and water that would otherwise be needed to grow the plant, and be able to get high-quality molecules uh, to consumers. Well, that's, that's fascinating. And it's just like, and very timely considering, you know, the importance of cabinol, ca the cannabis industry growing at this point. Let me, um, yeah. let me back up for a second and let me talk about chemical engineering in particular, because you mentioned in your acceptance of the doing a world of good metal, that chemical engineering has given you the tools to make a difference in the world. Could you elaborate on what you meant by that? I mean, it's just like, what specifically were you referencing when you said that? Yeah. So I think uh, chemical engineering is a fantastic discipline. It's a really hard discipline um, because you have to know physics and chemistry and math and, and be able to put those together and synthesize um, in, in synth synthesize that information. And so um, I always say that, that chemical engineering graduates um, are the best trained for doing almost anything because it's just this really well-rounded background. And mm -hmm. I feel that um, I wouldn't be today where I am if it weren't for chemical engineering. Even though I didn't take it up till I was in graduate school, um, I still had to acquire all of that background. And it's it's understanding how all of those things fit together that's, I think, allowed me to be much more applied and practical and solve or help to solve real problems in the world that I wouldn't otherwise be able to do if I were a chemist or a biologist um, without that training that chemical engineering gives. Now... As far as your path, as far as the path you took in your career, you're obviously committed to the educational model of research as opposed to the corporate model. What's behind that drive? I mean, has it given you any specific advantages or represented any challenges in trying to get to the places that you've arrived at? Oh, it's been it's been really awesome to be kind of at, in the academic environment. I, you know. Um, at Berkeley, I, I get to encounter these brilliant minds, graduate students, undergraduate students, postdocs who um, are super smart. I, I always say that that everybody in the in my lab is smarter than me. And and I believe it. Um, they are driven, um, focused and really smart and so creative, come up with some of the most interesting ideas um, um, that we've been able to implement. And um, I, I'm also an entrepreneur. I've started several companies. And a lot of these companies I started with my former graduate students and postdocs. Um, and um, it's in part because they're so creative and so interesting and want to solve real world problems. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not just being at, at, Berkeley, it's kind of being also in this entrepreneurial environment in the Bay Area. Um, that's uh, been so rewarding for me. But it's and it's not just about starting the companies. It's also about um, 
uh, having being surrounded by these creative minds and doing something that adds to their career and hopefully boosts them to the next level. Mm, that's awesome. That's awesome. And, you know, in particular, and when you got the Doing a World of Good Metal, it was also given to you in honor of your commitment to creating an inclusive educational and working environment for all people. What does that look like in practical terms? I mean, take me through what kind of uh, advantages you've gotten for having that kind of discipline within your educational environment and your corporate environments. Yeah, so uh, I'm gay. Uh, okay. And growing up in uh, Nebraska uh, in the 70s and early 80s um, was not necessarily easy. Uh, and so I can... I have an appreciation for people who have um, adversity in their lives because of who they are. Mm. And, and um, so I've always tried to be mindful of that and, um, and supportive of that in any way I can. And I think it's really important to have an inclusive environment. And, you know, to be fair, it's really easy here at Berkeley because um, Berkeley is such an open-minded environment, so accepting of of anyone's backgrounds and beliefs um, that, that, yeah, to be fair, you know, it's easy to do here in Berkeley, but um, it's... well, it's, 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 it's easy to say that it's easy to do it in Berkeley, but it's not easy to do it anywhere. It's hard to be different in any kind of setting. And it's just like, and I applaud you for your, your approach to the educational environment to make it more inclusive. And I, I, it sounds like it, you know, it's fair to say it's very personal for you. It is very personal for me. Uh, and you know what? And it's just the right thing to do. You just, it's just the right thing to do. Um, and so, you know, I try to do my part um, uh, to to build a more inclusive environment. Well, where do you see that the educational and the business environment still fall short in this regard um, in terms of in- inclusivity? Um, and particularly in the engineering space, I would assume that'd be the best place to start. What do you see as the number one thing <laughs> that can and should be done today? You know, that... <clears throat> the startup world is, is, um, is dominated, uh, by white males Mm. and, and it's changing. Uh, but if you look at, at the makeup of founders, they, they tend to be in a lot of companies, white males. And, um, uh, I think we have a lot of work to do to change that. Um, but you're starting, we're starting to see that change somewhat. Um, and I think what we have to do is, um, encourage, um, uh, people with diverse backgrounds, um, to, to get into the startup environment. I think we have to make sure that we have, um, VCs, uh, that are, uh, from diverse backgrounds so that, uh, the VC world looks more like, um, the U S population as a whole. 
And when that happens, I think we'll start to see more founders look that way as well. Um, uh, but it's a chicken and egg thing. Um, and uh, we try to do our part here um, to just encourage um, uh, more diversity in, in the startup world. You know, but we also see it in, in engineering as a, as a discipline there. Um, we need more um, uh, people of color as graduate students, as undergraduates at all levels. So one of the things that we've done here uh, in my institute is we have a, a program for underrepresented minorities for the summer with, and it's high school students. Mm -hmm. to bring them in from uh, the local school districts from Oakland and Richmond and get them involved in research. And we've been doing that for the last uh, 11 years. And uh, something like 97% of those students end up going to college and 80% end up majoring in STEM. And, you know, the numbers are small. Uh, we we uh, take about 10 students every summer. But every little bit counts. Yeah, every and, little bit does count. And I'm sure it's having massive impact around these, these kids, uh, not just with the kids themselves. That's right. That's right. And, and it's, a, it's a program where we try to go deep on a small number of people. Um, and then we continue to follow them um, through their careers. Now, just to wrap up, what are your next big steps? And can you give us a sense of what we can expect from you and your team in the coming year? Any big research announcements you want to make for us here on the um, program? <laughs> we, we have some really fun and exciting projects uh, going on in the lab. And I, I can't really say too much about them, but I'm oh. super excited. <laughs> I'm super excited about them. Um, uh, as as um, I get more and more senior in my field. Um, you know, I, I look, um, less to the, you know, the, the, the big kind of spotlight things, um, that are going to grab a lot of attention and more to the things that, um, are going to have a, a legacy for me. Um, and I, I think that a lot of that is around educating people, making sure that, um, everybody leaves here with, um, the best education that we can give them and really um, attacking kind of the, the most important problems that are facing mankind right now um, so that we can try to, you know, be a part of, of solving some of those. And that sounds like a great place to wrap up. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Our guest today has been Dr. Jay Keesling. For more details about the topics we discussed or to find out more about the Doing a World of Good campaign, visit doingaworldofgood.org. And that does it for this episode of Doing a World of Good. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, search for us on your favorite podcast directory or visit doingaworldofgood.org. On behalf of everyone at the American Institute of Chemical Engineers, I'm Bob Norp. Thanks for listening. Thank you.